Hi Brickies, I'm Dominic, the last one standing with a kink for cannibalism. And I'm Kate, the resident phobia expert who also hears voices. And you're listening to Shit and Bricks. A podcast where we talk shit about stuff that scares us. Ripping a few laughs and survival tips along the way. As always, please subscribe, rate and review us. And don't forget to follow us on the socials at Shit and Bricks Podcast. Like the morning after a night on the curries and cans, here it comes. So drop your ducks, pop a squat and let's get into it. Whatever hair is left. (laughs) (laughs) My hair's a bit all over the shop as well. I had it in a half hub, half town, and now I've taken it out. (laughs) So Your hairline's beautiful, yeah. If you could look really closely, there's a tan line here. (laughs) And then everything back is all white and beautiful, untouched sun. You know, yeah. there's no sun's ever gotten to that bit. So it just shows you where the former hairline was. <laughs> it's like my tan is dobbing me in going, you yeah. used to be this bald and now you're even this more bald. <laughs> like what a stitch up. Anyway. Hi, Kate. <laughs> hey, Dom. Lucky you wear a wig like an absolute champ. Yeah. I don't know. Do you reckon I could get away with a wig? One of those toupees? Those pieces? Definitely. Yeah. The more George Costanza it is, the better. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. All the pills and all the hair transplants and I don't, yeah. I think I've got my better things to spend my money on. But anyway. We're in a we're on a podcast. <laughs> Did you know? <laughs> Have we started? Is this yes, it? This is Hi it. everyone. Um, Welcome to today's episode. <laughs> episode number 96. So you know what that Ooh. means. Four more. This go. one and four more. This one and four more. I can't believe we're actually getting to the hundred mark and we've not missed a week. No, we have not. Yeah. We have pretty, not pretty Fair, solid effort, so. Agreed. Anyway, it's your turn this week, isn't it, Kate? It is my turn this week, and a newspaper article sparked this episode, so I'm excited to share that with you. Ah, lovely. Should we do some housekeeping? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it real quick, smart. Um, Let's do it. Folks. People, listen. Uh oh. Brickies. Yeah. We love you and we love it when you Uh-oh. love us back. <laughs> yes, agreed. This so is go- starting off on a turn. Okay. <laughs> I know. But go check out our socials. It's the usual shitting.bricks.podcast. And we're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. They're our big, famous, like constant ones. So go check out those ones. We're on all the others, but they're the ones you should go follow. Yeah, that's the money. Yeah. That's the fun stuff. And while you're at it, go check out our Patreon because you're missing out on half the fun. Each week, Kate and I give bonus content episodes and it costs you like minimum five bucks. You could could spend 500 if you wanted. Do it. it. Get us a new microphone. Let's go. (laughs) But minimum five bucks a month, which is nothing. You spend more Mm -hmm. on toilet paper, in fact. Significantly more. I yeah. use toilet paper like I'm the richest bitch around and I should yeah. stop it. <laughs> <laughs> the Do cost you know, of living these days. I know, right? <laughs> these This generation is so spoiled oh, with, their, so, the, toilet with their toilet paper, their four-ply. They don't know what it was like. Single-ply, your finger goes through it, you may as well just bloody use steel wool. I used to shave my kids' heads so I had something to wipe my ass with. <laughs> it did so we've done patreon we're also part of the boo pod network which is a family of podcasts we usually spruik one of them but we've just done so many of them that we're moving on and instead we're focusing on the fact that halloween is coming up and this is Ooh. halloween this is halloween i'm excited <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're excited. Normally we do a Halloween special. So the Boopod we- Network is continuing this. And I'm also excited because we usually release on a Friday. And October this year, 
for Halloween, there is a Friday the 13th. Uh, yeah, and no one, none of them have taken Friday the 13th. We've oh, got Friday the 6th. Oh, my God. Yeah. Is when our episode's coming out because we're going to go first. But no one else has done the 13th yet. Hint, hint. Guys, no come on. Let's go. Oh, hanging fruit, as they say. Yeah. Um, but yes, we're doing a Halloween special this year with Boo Pod, and that's going to mark, don't cry folks, but that's going to mark the last episode in Kate and I's current format. But yes. don't worry, we're coming we'll back, back. And we'll be better than ever. Better than ever. We're going to do some like rehash of some of our favorite episodes, and then Kate and I are working on something so freaking spectacular and cool. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. So anyway, we're going to end on Halloween, which I just think is that's a great way. To, it's perfect. To wrap up it is perfect. version point one. So yeah, I think that's probably great. it. That's enough housekeeping, Catherine. Sounds good. I think that's worthwhile because today's episode, uh, I'm going to keep an eye on time because I've got a lot to share. Sure. Uh, but again, I, you know, I might save little bits and pieces for our Patreon. Um, so let's see where we get to, shall mm-hmm. we? Oh my God, let's get into it, Kate. I'm so excited. Let's do it. Let's flip and do it. Okay. Today's episode, as you have clicked on, believe it or not, is about Stockholm Syndrome. And I was shocked to to find that we've not done an episode on this as a topic. We have, and I'm I'm going to touch on them a little bit uh, later, we have done standalone episodes, uh, particularly on one of these that I will bring up, uh, but as a whole, we've not done a Stockholm syndrome episode. So I thought seeing this article in the paper, which I will talk a little, not the paper on the internet. I don't touch physical things. <laughs> disgusting. Uh, but I had, did see an article and it sort of brought it up and I, I had to ask Dom, I said, have we done Stockholm syndrome? Uh, and Dom said, we've done, you know, around that and we have done a story that fits into that category, but that's a standalone. So I'll get to that in a little bit. But for those of you who are playing along at home for your uh, phobia bingo, Stockholm syndrome is a condition in which a hostage or a person in captivity develops a bond with their aggressor. Now this bond, it can range between simple feelings of empathy to the illusion of romantic interest, almost a full-blown obsession and love. Mm. The name derives from the August 1973. So it's not a ancient terminology hasn't been coined in the 1800s this is 1973 and it was from the normal storg robbery of the credit banken in uh normal storg sorry in stockholm sweden in which gunmen held bank employees captive for six days and over these days the hostages formed an alliance with the criminals i will go into detail about that particular event in a little bit Now, psychologists have described Stockholm Syndrome as an extreme coping or survival mechanism against a hostile situation. Makes sense. Your brain creates pathways to help you cope. Those rescued are said to be in a trance-like state wherein the concept of right and wrong was so muddled that the captivity became comforting. In cases where a person is held for years, it's the outside world that represents the danger or uncertainty. Sealed doors signify safety. So that's yeah. a quick wrap up of your Stockholms. And as per usual, I always like to give you a rundown of some examples, uh, mm-hmm. some, you know, short, sharp stories. So here are six documented cases of Stockholm syndrome. So these are documented ones that made this list. So I'm going to go ahead and share some of these with you now. Dom, are you ready? I'm done. I'm ready. I'm in Stockholm. Give here me, we, I mean, I'm give in me Stockholm. Yeah, we're here in Stockholm. <laughs> Yoo-hoo, big summer blowout. <laughs> <laughs> the first of the six is Sean Hornbeck. 11-year-old Missouri resident Sean Hornbeck was riding his bike to a friend's house on October 6, 2002, when he was intentionally struck by an automobile. I don't oh, use the rude. word automobile nearly enough. I know, intentionally struck. The or driver, vehicle, <laughs> vehicle um, automobile, vehicle, yeah, car works. You, if you had to pick, are you an automobile or are you a vehicle? Oh, I think vehicle. I think because I like a strong letter. Because I have K's in my name, I think the V works for me, <laughs> so to <laughs> I'm speak. I'm an automobile. Okay, you could be an automobile. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. You just can't yeah. take it. 
Couldn't I stand it. No. I'm just not one of those types of gals. I couldn't be absolutely seen with the vehicle <laughs> tag. <laughs> I'm an automobile through and through. Okay, uh, we made it one sentence without derailing ourselves. I'm proud. I'm proud. <laughs> so, uh, Sean Hornbeck, he's hit by a car. Now, the driver, Michael John Devlin, jumped out. He loaded Sean into his car and took off. Police, firefighters and volunteers combed the area for the missing child without success. Four and a half years later, another missing child, 13-year-old William Benjamin Ownby, was found in Devlin's apartment along with now-teenaged Sean Hornbeck. Devlin was arrested and charged with abduction. After his rescue, Sean told law enforcement that he freely went shopping in public, he had a girlfriend, he could go on the internet, all while remaining under Devlin's watchful eye. Asked why he never attempted to escape, Sean revealed that Devlin had instilled a deep fear and threatened violence repeatedly, creating psychological barriers that kept him prisoner. Wow, that is fascinating. Like, Uh we've done some abduction-y stories before. We have. And they've never broken. Actually, no, that's not true. Colleen Stan was a really interesting. It was. Anyway. Yes, that was a very interesting story. Not at all. You can jump as many guns as you want. You just go for it. Anyway, number five. Yeah. What's number five, sorry. Kate? Stop Number five. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I keep Stop interrupting you. Stop wasting my time, please. <laughs> sorry. Uh, number five. That's okay. Never apologize. Number five is Patty Hurst. <gasps> One of the most infamous kidnapping cases in history is that of 19-year-old Patty Hurst, the granddaughter of publishing giant William Randolph Hearst. On the morning of February 4, 1974, a group of gun-wielding domestic terrorists broke into Hearst's apartment at 2603 Benvenue Street in Berkeley, California. Hearst's fiancé was beaten up and Hearst was thrown into the trunk of a car and driven away. The FBI soon learned that her subductors identified themselves as the Symbionese Liberation Army, or the SLA, and that they were attempting to wage war with the United States. The group had already left carnage in their wake and by their own admission abducted the the heiress for financial and political leverage. News of the kidnapping dominated headlines. Then in April of 1974, the case took an unexpected twist. Patty Hearst had joined her captors and announced her intention to be a revolutionary. She even assisted in a bank robbery and started traveling around the country after a shootout between the SLA and the LA police. Um, Now, wait, she started traveling around the country after a shootout between the SLA and the Los Angeles police. SLA leader Donald DeFreeze died. So he got shotted and dead. She was finally captured in San Francisco on September 18th, 1975. She was charged with robbery and sentenced to seven years in prison. In her defense, Hearst claimed that she had been brainwashed. She only served two years before her sentence was commuted. She was later pardoned. Now, Hearst's sensational tale is the subject of numerous films, documentaries, studies and books, including Jeffrey Tubin's American Heiress, The Wild Saga of the Kidnapping, uh, Crimes and Trial of Patty Hearst. Again, wordy title. Too many words. American heiress, the wild saga of the kidnapping, crimes and trial of Patty Hearst. Too much. How do you even fit that on a book sleeve? Relax. So that is Patty Hearst who was going to join the SLA and then she's like, I was brainwashed. Can I stop being in prison now? I don't want to be here. (laughs) I assume that's how she spoke. (laughs) Number four. (laughs) Number four is Mary McElroy. On the evening of May 27th, 1933, we're gone back in time, 25-year-old Mary McElroy was taking a bubble bath in her father's house when she was abducted by four men, including brothers George and Walter McGee. The men broke into the house with a sawed-off shotgun. Sawn-off shotgun? Sawed-off shotgun. Sawed-off. Sawn-off? Sawn-off. Sawn-off shotgun. How can you break into your home if you're the brother of the victim? Isn't it? Oh no, the, they were just well? brothers. The brothers were part of the four. Oh, so George and Walter McGee were brothers, and they were in the foursome that came in to take Mary. 
Okay. So the men broke into the house with a sawn-off shotgun and then they waited very kindly for Mary to get dressed before taking her to an old farmhouse and chaining her to a wall in a basement. Imagine. <laughs> the what would you What would you choose to wear? <laughs> They're like, so we're kidnapping you. Um, maybe wear something warm. And she's mm. like, do I need a coat? Should I take a coat? Um, I'm just thinking maybe like a sweat, a sweater. Do I need a sweater where we're going? Uh, so she's taken, she's chained to a wall in the basement. Mary, the daughter of Kansas City manager, Henry F. McElroy, was a potential gold mine in ransom money. Realising this, I mean, they obviously didn't realise it to start with, but realising this, the men demanded $60,000. Now, this is 1933, so that's a significant amount of cash. Uh, they demanded 60000 for her release, but they eventually settled for 30000 so release at half price. They were having a special. <laughs> the sum was paid on May 29, 1933, and Mary was released unharmed near Milburn Golf Course. Three of the men were captured less than a month later and sent to trial. However, Mary said that she was well cared for during her 29 hours of captivity. Apparently, one of the men even gave her flowers. Ooh. When the trial concluded and all three men were given harsh sentences, Mary was riddled with guilt. She publicly sympathised with her abductors and called upon Governor Guy Brassfield Park to reverse the sentence. Mary remained friends with the McGee brothers throughout their incarceration, visiting them in prison and bringing them gifts. This ordeal did lead to multiple nervous breakdowns for Mary. After her father died in 1939, her mental state collapsed. And on January 29th, 1940, she committed suicide with a pistol shot to the head. Part of her suicide note read, my four kidnappers are probably the four people on earth who don't consider me an utter fool. Wow. Like, yeah. Commitment. <laughs> right? To get to that point as well. So that's 1940. So that's seven years after it happened. And she stays friends with the people. She goes and sees them in prison, gives them little presents i mean look okay and yeah you might leave space for this at, at some point but like i think about it i'm an, a very empathetic person and mm-hmm. I, you know i'm not saying all types of criminals or all types if someone did certain things then there might be a you know that might cross a line it could be me, a line but sure i naturally if someone does something and is pushed to desperation and takes desperate acts my initial thought is not to judge them and demonize them. It's very much to empathize. Oh my goodness. You must have gotten to such a place that you have to revert to this. You know, I would, I could understand. Yeah. Being, Had to get into that situation. Yeah. I would, yeah, I would yeah. naturally, I'm just, I guess what I'm saying is I'm not one to immediately be like, you're a fucking asshole. You shouldn't mm. be stealing from the bank. I'd be like, what's happened to you? Yeah. That you were stealing from a bank. Like yeah. you, I have pity or I have empathy or whatever the fuck. Yeah. Yeah. I could or you see want to sort of understand in, a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. And how I that could could see turn into in an emotional state. You could. Yeah. How that could happen. Interesting. Mm. Would you like to hear number three? Absolutely. I'm listening to it already. <laughs> You're forced. You're actually stuck here. So too bad. Number three is Elizabeth Smart. In the early, uh, I always like to read a name and then see if Dom nods because then he'll know it. But (laughs) Elizabeth Smart, in the early morning hours of June 5th, 2002, 14-year-old Elizabeth Smart was kidnapped from her bedroom in Salt Lake City, Utah. My worst nightmare. Her abductor, Brian David Mitchell, forced her onto a seemingly random hike for hours until they eventually stopped at a campsite. (laughs) Knock, 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 come through the window. Hey, Dal, fancy a hike? <laughs> what do you mean so? I mean, it's it's four in the morning, but I'm really feeling a hike. My name's Brian, Brian David Mitchell. Um, I have three first names, so if that's not a red flag, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> but BDM has um, taken her for a hike and they stopped at a oh, campsite. Sorry BDM. about that. I shouldn't have done that. I know. <laughs> BDM and he's packing a scrogging. <laughs> And would you believe the son of a bitch has taken all the M&Ms out of it? Yeah. <laughs> you know it's only the raisins and nuts left. Fuck off, BDM. Put the M&Ms back in the scrog bag. I swear to God. <laughs> all right, so they've eventually stopped at a campsite. Now, 
Elizabeth was met by Mitchell's wife, inverted commas, Wanda Barzi. Now that sort of sounds a bit like a drag name. Wanda Barzi. Now Wanda made her undress and Mitchell uh, performed a rudimentary marriage ceremony between himself and Elizabeth. And then he raped the young girl. Ooh, that took a turn. Afterwards, she was chained to a tree and abused. And over the next nine months, Elizabeth was repeatedly raped and psychologically moulded into a submissive prisoner. Any instance of disobedience was met with threats of violence. Elizabeth soon became a model captive, as you would. Why would you not try to stop the horrendous things that are happening to you? Uh, And she followed orders. Now, along with Mitchell and Barzi, Elizabeth went on many outings, sometimes to shop and other times to scavenge. During a trip to the library, Elizabeth was even questioned by a police officer and chose not to reveal her identity or to scream for help. The trio moved 750 miles away to California, but Mitchell decided to uproot them once more and move across to the East Coast. Elizabeth appealed to Mitchell's self-proclaimed godliness and told him that they should return to Utah for spiritual reasons. Mitchell agreed with the understanding that the idea had been his. So that's a good way to sort of, I don't know, manipulate Manipulate. the situation. Mm -hmm. Now, back in Utah, all three were recognised from the torrent of news broadcasts. Elizabeth was pulled from her abductors and returned to her family. Seven years after the ordeal, she testified against Mitchell and Barzi. Mitchell was sentenced to life in prison and Barzi was serving 15 years in prison. Heavy. Mm. Mm. I just, I Mm. ugh over the, is that it? That's all you get? I know. And I think. Repeatedly raping and torturing someone? Like. Yeah. I think also in terms of Stockholm Syndrome, to me, she manipulated that situation to get back to Utah, assuming that she would know that that would then stop the cycle. So, so Stockholm syndrome wise, I don't know. And then the fact that she testified later on, there's not as much in that that suggests to me. It's really just around the fact that she didn't tell the cops who she was, but that's because she was scared, not because she didn't want to be found and she was enjoying her time. Well, to your so, point, your definition earlier, I don't yes. hear sympathy or align, nah, alignment nah. to your captors there. I hear fear and like just being completely survival. terrified and tortured. Survival, correct, correct. Um, okay, but moving on to number two. Number two, Dominic, we have done a standalone episode on this and number two that fits into our list of six is Colleen Stan. If you want to hear more about this story, you can go back oh. to our, our standalone episode, um, which would be back, I reckon, in the 30s, to be honest. It's been quite a while since we spoke about Colleen. Uh, but as a bit of a recap and fitting into our, our first our... ever. Was it really? It was our first ever test episode. Shut the front door. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay, so, folks, if you go back 95 episodes, you will be able to find our standalone on Colleen Stan. So what a perfect little roundabout for us to be getting to a point of wrapping up and now we're throwbacks to our very first episode. Holy moly. Okay, so for those of you who are new who have just joined us and they haven't listened to that, Colleen Stan, in 1977, 20-year-old Colleen Stan was hitchhiking to a friend's party near Red Bluff in California. She was picked up by a couple driving a blue van with a child in the back seat. The presence of the child made the couple appear safe. But soon the husband, Cameron Hooker, put a knife to Colleen's throat, drove her to a deserted area and then raped and tortured her. Hooker's plan was to turn Colleen into a sex slave with the help of his wife, Jan. To make matters worse, Hooker built a coffin-sized box in which he held Colleen captive for 22 to 23 hours per day for the next seven years. Colleen was subjected to cruel torture throughout her imprisonment. She was renamed Kay and called a piece of furniture. Hooker told Colleen that he worked for an organisation called The Company that would hurt her if she disobeyed him. Ironically, the hookers were loving and affectionate to their young daughter and used this extreme contrast in their behaviour to further manipulate Colleen. At one point, Hooker handed Colleen a gun and told her to stick it in her mouth and pull the trigger. Colleen complied. 
but the gun contained no bullets. It was a test of loyalty. In 1981, after nearly four years, Hooker took Colleen home to visit her family and left her there overnight. The Stans knew nothing of the abuse their daughter had suffered and Colleen did not inform them. Instead, when Hooker returned the following day, Colleen left with him and resumed her life in the box for another three and a half years. Holy shit. Thankfully, Jan Hooker eventually had a change in conscience uh, conscience and helped Colleen escape. Cameron Hooker was apprehended by police, convicted of kidnapping and torture, and was sentenced to 104 years in prison on November 22nd, 1985. That sounds about appropriate. (laughs) Sounds about appropriate. Sounds about right. I can't, yeah, for her to return. But again, I feel as though it's a... It's a fear, it's a manipulation, it's a torture sit show. But you know, that's okay. That is an intense episode. We really hit the ground running with the with the first episode. So yeah, please go back and have a listen to that. Um if you want to hear the the ins and outs of the duck's ass, because that's that episode does have it. (laughs) Number one. (laughs) Sorry, was that a bit callous? I love a bit of butt talk, even if it's who doesn't? Yeah. Okay. Poultry, poultry, <laughs> poultry, bovine, yeah, uh, something else. Okay, number one, Natasha Campush. While walking to school on March second, nineteen ninety eight, ten year old Natasha Campush was grabbed by two men and thrown into a white van. That's the start of every episode of SVU. Despite an exhaustive search of the area, police could find no trace of Natasha or her her reputed reputed. Yeah, yeah, reputed kidnappers. Sorry, I just had a mini stroke. For the next eight years, Natasha was held prisoner in a cellar beneath 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 the garage of a man named Wolfgang. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. I'm not going to pronounce it correctly because it's got little like blip blips above the letters. So I'm just going to pronounce it phonetically for the letters that are there in a very um, terrible way uh, of English. Take it up, Kate. You got it. Wolfgang Pricklopple. (laughs) (laughs) Pricklopple. Pricklopple. Okay, so she's Natasha's in a cellar beneath the garage of a man named Wolfgang Pricklopple. The cellar was 54 square feet, windowless, soundproof, and closed in by a concrete steel door. Initially, Natasha was not permitted to leave the room, but as time went on, she was invited to spend time in other parts of the house. Lucky girl. She was left alone in the cellar during the day while Pricklopple worked. In the following years, Natasha was given additional freedoms as part of the pact that she would stay silent about her captivity. Each morning, Natasha and Pricklopple at breakfast together. Uh, <laughs> I can't. I try so hard. I'm going to have to say Wolfgang. Yeah. I'm going to have to. Nah, I'm, I'm sticking. Pricklopple um, at breakfast together, living in a distorted version of normalcy. But Pricklopple <laughs> counted his niceties. <laughs> oh, no, I can't be laughing when I read this sentence. <laughs> Pricknopple. <laughs> oh, he counted his niceties by beating and raping Natasha, all the while maintaining that the doors and windows of the house were rigged with explosives. On random occasions, Natasha tried to attract the attention of outsiders but was unsuccessful. Finally, on August 23rd, Mum's birthday, happy birthday, Mum, 2006, she managed to slip away. She had been... <laughs> This is a great sentence. She had been vac- <laughs> I can't say it. She had been vacuuming Pricklopple's BMW under his supervision when the phone rang. <laughs> Pricklopple left Natasha unattended while he took the call. Leaving the vacuum running, clever girl, she took off into the streets and found a neighbour who called the police. Once Natasha had been in police protection, Pricklopple realised that he would likely be convicted of kidnapping and sentenced to life in prison. No shit. To avoid this, he jumped... Oh, fuck. To avoid this, he jumped in front of a moving train near the Wien Nord station in Vienna. 
When Natasha was informed of Prickloppel's death, she wept and even demanded to sit alone with his coffin for hours. Years after the escape, she still carried a photo of him in her wallet. I remember this one. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. You don't believe me. Okay, girl. No, mm-hmm. But I that's the that's the bit that uh triggered it for me was the mm. even years afterwards still going back, visiting the grave, um carrying the photo around with yeah. her. Yeah. I remember the picture this. in the wallet. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot. Um, okay, so those are our six. Those are our six mini stories of some Stockholm Syndrome cases, documented cases, okay? okay? Now, the article from ABC News that piqued my attention earlier in the week is centred around the initial story I discussed at the beginning of the bank heist where they yeah. kept their people captive for six days. That is where the term Stockholm Syndrome was coined. Okay, so the article that I was reading and that I have um, used for the rest of this story, its title is, Is Stockholm Syndrome a Myth? The Terrifying Crime Behind Psychology's Most Famous and Dubious Term. So I want to talk through this with you a little bit because I found that really interesting. Okay, we're going to go through the story, then we'll talk a little bit about the, the idea of Stockholm Syndrome as a sort of diagnosable or, you know, clinical term or whatever they choose to to use. All right. On August 23rd, mum's birthday, happy birthday, mum, 1973, a notorious safecracker walked into a Stockholm bank with a submachine gun, a knife, a transistor radio, explosives and lengths of rope. Jan-Erik Olsen was ready for the greatest heist of his life. Dressed in a brown wig and fake glasses, he fired a few rounds into the ceiling and announced to the terrified crowd, the party has just begun. Now, as far as opening lines go for a heist, that's pretty good. That's a strong opener. It's pretty good, but I don't know if I quite agree with it. (laughs) Party is one way to describe it. (laughs) Exactly. Everyone at the Sverages Credit Bank, including the robber, hoped his demands would be swiftly met. Instead, the robbery turned into a six-day ordeal that transformed the lives of everyone involved and gave rise to one of the world's most famous and dubious psychological terms. You've probably heard of Stockholm Syndrome. In fact, if you listen to this now, you have. I just talked about it for half an hour. Mm, Like, Yeah, come on, guys. Switch on, switch on. Eyes up here, thanks. Okay, we're going to start what we're doing. We're looking up this way and we're listening. That's my cue-in strategy at school. All right, now like obsessive-compulsive disorder and sociopath, it is one of those phrases that we throw around in conversation without understanding what it truly means. Stockholm syndrome is a proposed condition claiming that during a hostage situation, victims can become hopelessly attached to their captors. It was coined by Nils Bejerot, a, psychi- a psychiatric advisor engaged by police during the standoff at Sverige's credit bank. He publicly claimed that one of the young female hostages had forged an emotional bond with the bank robber, implying that their connection was sexual. Oh. Kristen Enmark, who was 23 when her workplace became the site of the dramatic siege, is the first person in the world to be diagnosed with Stockholm Syndrome. The trouble is the condition might not actually exist. Now, she spent her life maintaining that she felt no affinity for her captor and only did what it took to stay alive. Now, 50 years later, experts are questioning whether Stockholm Syndrome is a genuine phenomenon or simply a term foisted on a woman who did not respond the way society expected her to during the most frightening experience of her life. She was a courageous young woman who worked hard to preserve her own safety and the safety of others, said Dr. Alan Wade, a Canadian therapist who has spoken at length with Kristen about her experiences. She is one of the most famous and one of the most profoundly misunderstood women in psychology. Here's a little bit about Kristen's story to give you some sort of background on that that time. Kristen was working as a stenographer at Sverige's Credit Bank when Jan Erik came smashing into her life. 
She had recently broken up with her boyfriend and she was planning to quit the bank in a few weeks so that she could go back to uni. But on that August day, she walked onto the bank floor and found a gun-wielding man blasting rock music from a transistor radio. I believed a maniac had come into my life, she told The New Yorker in 1974. I believed I was seeing something that could only happen in America. Jan Eric, who turned the radio on so he could listen to the news report about his own bank heist, bound Kristen's wrists and ankles with rope. She was among four employees he took hostage. In exchange for their freedom, he had a raft of demands. Firstly, he wanted notorious con man Clark Olofsson to be freed from prison and brought to the bank. Brought to the bank. Then he wanted the men to be given the equivalent of $3.4 million, two guns, two bulletproof vests, and a Ford Mustang. The Swedish government gave police permission to remove a bewildered Clark from his prison cell and deliver him to Sverige's credit bank. Mm. So they're directly negotiating with terrorists. They're negotiating with criminals. They've taken Clark from his prison cell and taken him to the credit bank. Jan Erik and Clark had been cellmates while serving sentences for robbery, but they insist that they did not plan the crime together. Instead, Jan Erik began to panic as his quick bank heist spiralled into a protracted siege and he spontaneously demanded the most skilled criminal that he knew to be brought to his aid. So he didn't plan that. He just went into the bank and went, oh, shit's what I should probably ask for something because this has turned into something else. I just wanted some cash money. But now <laughs> now we're in, we're in deeper than I thought. Somebody get Clark. Decades later, Kristen said that Clark helped to keep the situation calm and that he was a great comfort to her and the other hostages. We were very glad that he came because the situation became totally different, she told the Memory Motel podcast in 2017. He comforted me. He held my hand. He said, I'm going to see that Jan doesn't hurt you. What happened during the next six days inside the bank is still the subject of fierce debate among the police, the hostages and psychologists. Police refused to allow Jan, Eric and Clark to leave the bank if they attempted to take the hostages with them. Authorities also made a huge blunder in the first days of the siege. Jan Eric still dressed in his disguise, so he had a wig and stuff on, and speaking in a fake American accent was refusing to tell police his identity. After poring over lists of prison escapees, they decided that the bank robber was Kaj Hansen, a famous bandit who had actually been hiding out in Hawaii at the time. So the cops are just like, oh, it's got to be this guy because he's got an accent and he's got brown hair, but that's a wig and it's a fake accent. So they decided if it's Kaj Hansen, then we'll go and get his 16-year-old brother and send him in unannounced so that they and they because they believed that the side of a loved one was would convince Kaj to end the heist but that wasn't even him he was in wow. Hawaii so the cops have made a big blunder there so they've sent 16-year-old boy in off you go go talk to your brother tell him to stop holding people hostage but as the um, brothers walked in Jan Eric fired two rounds at him and then the boy was like, that's not my brother. And he ran. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. So he ran out. So they sent a 16-year-old boy in alone into this situation. So Jan Eric has shot, shot at him twice. And the boy was like, that ain't my brother. Bye. And has left. Jeez, so he fled the bank. Stupid. So this was the moment that the four hostages, including Kristen, started to question the competence of the men who had been sent to save their lives. Kristen decided that there was only one thing left to do. So she picked up the phone and she called Sweden's prime minister to scold him. Um, Does everyone just have the prime minister's (laughs) number in their phone book? I know. So she she says to the prime minister, I am very disappointed. I think that you're sitting there playing checkers with our lives. I fully trust Clark and the robber. I am not desperate. They have done. They haven't done a thing to us. So that phone call was surreptitiously recorded by the police. So they had a copy of what she was saying. Then she continues on to say, "But you know what? What I'm scared of is that the police will attack and cause us to die." So she's just stating her case here, going, "You're you're making a mess of this. You need to stop." During yeah. the forty-two minute call, so she's on the phone to the prime minister for forty-two minutes. The spirited young woman went head to head with the Prime Minister, demanding that he let her and the other hostages leave the bank with Olsen. 
So yarn, yarn Eric. You are, wait, Olsen? I'm just double checking names because yeah, it's, it's Clark Olsen, I think. They've it's got so interesting, names. right? But, because yes. you could easily twist this story mm-hmm. in so many different ways that yes. fairly or, you know, arguably does undermine this whole, no, she's not. She doesn't. She's not on their side. She's just you're. You're a load of fucking douchebags. You're messing it up. Correct. You're making so mistakes. At least I exactly. trust their. Their. You know their. <laughs> their. Uh, yeah. What they're pure. wanting. They, and they haven't want heard us. Freedom. <laughs> yeah, and you guys are sending in random sixteen-year-olds that have got nothing to do with this because you're just guessing. Kristen went on to say to the Prime Minister, you're the highest person in the country, you can save my life. Yes, the Prime Minister responded. But I think the best way of doing that is to not let them out on the roads. They must sooner or later understand that this must not continue. At one point, Kristen became frustrated and told the Prime Minister that he should have, no, sorry, and told Palm, I don't know who Palm is, sorry, but that she told um a person, he should appoint her prime minister for the evening so that she could be in control of her own destiny. And then he said, that can't be done whilst laughing. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. That's not sorry. a sign of, you know. You yeah, you can't. You can't be doing that. Um, yeah. Then went on to say, yeah, you. I think that you're being terribly unfair. Here are a great many policemen risking their lives who have not moved aggressively, aggressively in all this time. The purpose, of course, is to protect you. So the Prime Minister has, you know, backed it up with that. Frustrated, Kristen soon ended the phone call with a very sarcastic, thanks for the help. <laughs> She's a piece of work. Isn't she a pistol? She's like, you're Love messing it. this up. Let me be prime minister for the night. I can sort this. Um, and then, yeah, just just doubles down. And it's like, thanks very much. I'm fine. Hang up. <laughs> okay. She's, look, I'm, I'm all for strong, spirited people, but that, I don't know how helpful that kind of behaviour is. That demand like might have been. Sure. Yeah. All right. Now, after this had happened, uh, six and a half days, have gone by. So it turned into quite the siege and they've not really done anything in six and a half days. So after six and a half days, most of which were spent holed up in the bank vault, the hostages heard the sound of drilling. Police were making holes in the roof of the bank so that they could fill the room with tear gas. As the hours passed, Jan Eric became increasingly agitated, threatening to kill the hostages if police followed through on their plan. Don't send in gas. Whatever you do, one of the hostages Sven shouted at the ceiling. When Jan Eric tied a noose around her neck, Kristen believed the possibility that she would leave the bank alive was evaporating. Mm. From the moment that Jan made me his hostage, I was afraid he would suddenly kill me, she said. But now it was the police I was afraid of. I felt hopeless. What difference did it make, I asked myself. Which one of them did away with me? So she's in this position now where she's going, it's either going to be him or it's them because everybody's fucking this up. So, yeah. Finally, the drilling stopped and police sprayed their gas, sending Jan Eric and his captors collapsing to the floor where they sputtered and vomited. Fair enough. Mm. We give up, let us out, Jan Eric shouted. Jan Eric was removed from the bank in handcuffs, surrounded by police officers in gas masks. There's a picky of that on our socials if you would like to see. The hostages were wheeled out in stretchers, but Kristen, refusing to play the damsel in distress, sat stony-faced as she was taken to an ambulance. Also a picture of that on our socials. She looks thoroughly unimpressed. You <laughs> thoroughly fuckers. unimpressed. Fuck this up. <laughs> yeah. Clark, she called to the bank robber who was unwittingly drawn into Jan Eric's scheme, loud enough for the assembled media and reporters to hear, I'll see you again. Ta-ta. <laughs> Ta-ta. Bye-bye. Ta-ta. She didn't say that. I just added that for little dramatic effect. After her ordeal was over, Kristen publicly slammed the police for putting her life in danger. She also refused to testify against both men in court. Nils Bejereau, the police, police psychiatrist involved in the siege, never spoke to Kristen directly, but he diagnosed her with a condition that he invented. Calling the proposed condition 
Normalmstorg syndrome, which then became outside of Sweden as Stockholm syndrome, Bejero claimed that Kristen in particular was brainwashed by her captor. It is to be expected that after a point, a bond of friendship springs up between victims and their captors, he said in 1974. Mm. So the question is, is Stockholm syndrome a genuine disorder? Despite its fame, Stockholm syndrome has never been included in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM. Really? The handbook would have assumed. Right? So the handbook used by healthcare professionals in the United States and much of the world is considered the authoritative guide on the treatment of mental conditions. Jess Hill, an investigative journalist who focuses on gender violence, researched the origins of Stockholm Syndrome for her book, See What You Made Me Do. Bejero made the assumption based purely on what he had observed from an outsider's perspective that they had a syndrome without being any diagnostic criteria, without there being any type of study, without even mm. speaking to the victim, and that's the basis upon which, which Stockholm Syndrome is born. It's really easy to say they must have Stockholm Syndrome because it's comforting to think that there must be a syndrome that explains why victims act the way they do. It is also a way of saying, I would never act like that. Even Jan Eric himself admits that building by building a rapport with him, his hostages probably saved their own lives. They made it hard to kill. They made us go on living together day after day like goats in that filth. There was nothing to do but get to know each other, he said a year after the robbery. Dr. Wade does not believe that Stockholm Syndrome exists. Stockholm Syndrome became a way of silencing an indignant, angry, exhausted, courageous young woman who was speaking about the realities of the events from her point of view, he said. It had nothing to do with the psychology of Kristen Enmark. It was a silencing strategy. For decades after the siege, Kristen worried that she had done something wrong during her six-day ordeal in the vault, but as she grew older, she changed her mind. The ideal hostage is a woman who keeps her mouth shut and thinks that the police are going to protect her, she said. And when someone pops up like me who says the opposite, you have to call it being unhealthy, insane, instead of looking at what the police did. Now in her 70s, Kristen has nothing but admiration for her 23-year-old self. When they write things in the paper, I couldn't care less, she said. I know my story and I know my truth. After almost 50 years, I felt I didn't do anything wrong. I did what I had to do and I'm kind of feeling proud of myself. And that brings us to the end of our episode about Stockholm Syndrome, which isn't a real syndrome. Wow. Kate has laid it bare, folks. Yeah. Yeah. I just, when I saw that article and I read the context around it where it's, you know, it is a term that's bandied around. Like I just, I always hate it, particularly when I'm watching the Kardashians, which shockingly, but whenever they're like, you know, and granted I don't know them personally, so I don't know what they're going through, but when they're in like a stressful situation and they're just like, I just, I have such bad anxiety. Like I need to be treating my anxiety. I've got anxiety and no doubt they probably do. They live very intense lives, but I feel as though things like that, like anxiety and, uh, you know, depression, like I feel so depressed. It's like, you're not depressed. You're just upset because you couldn't get the coffee order you wanted. Stuff like that. That's bandied around. And this is one of those terms that is thrown out there that is so readily known, but it's not actually a real thing. Yeah, and if you think about it, as we have the world of mental health and and um, and just psychology and and the medical practice and and, and also crime as well, yeah. Stockholm. It's not like there's been more and more cases of Stockholm syndrome or more and more famous cases of it. It's like it was a thing, and then it's not really. It's not like it's super super common, you know. Yeah. Or it, it, and to me, that kind of says that, hey, this is too easy a bucket to put things in. Like there, correct. Are, so you could honestly, and this is a very prevalent and relevant 
topic at the moment because of COVID and domestic violence at home, right? Yes, yes. Why do we not hear domestic, you know, all all these people that stay in a home Mm -hmm. and uh, are in horrid situations, we wouldn't just paint them all with the same brush of being... No, we're not all, oh, well, they've got Stockholm Syndrome. Exactly. Because obviously there's a part of them that still loves and is connected. Yeah. you know, there was a um, your sympathy for their, their uh, yeah for their partner or their situation. Correct, and there's also there was a, a you know news report on this last night that I was watching, and you know it's I know I joked about it earlier, but I mean like the cost of living, like the the ability for someone who and in a lot of these situations they're not necessarily financially independent so it can be a lot of abuse around financial abuse mm. and it can be around them not having access to money or being questioned or things like that and particularly you know not always but a high percentage of women so it's not always just women but certainly a high percentage and if you've got children if you are you know without family or a connect connected network which you know occasionally this that sort of situation can drive you to be isolated and mm-hmm. you know um it's not easy just to go okay cool yeah perfect i'll go and rent a house for 600 dollars a week for me and my kids and then i'll move my kid out of that school and i'll go and do the you can't afford to do that you can't like there's so many different situations so i agree in the ability to tar people with the same brush and for situations like this that are even more intensive, a hostage situation and an abduction situation. But when you go back to think that this phrase was coined by a psychiatrist who didn't even talk to the person, that's what I found fascinating. So oh, I, you know, I, it's so incredible. But, stupid. yes, gosh, we went a bit deep there. Goodness gracious. Well done, Kate. That was a hey, fabulous thanks. one. I thought it was a cool little tie, a little, you know, tie up at the end there because that article really got me. So I just thought I can't wait to share this, but throw in a few stories as well. And when you say it, you know, it's way of, of um, you know, assimilating to a to a topic where you go Stockholm Syndrome. I know what that is. Yeah, it's when you fall in love with your captor or whatever the case is. So, but now we can question, it's not a, you know, diagnosable uh, psychiatric Ooh. condition. Yeah. Use that for your dinner table conversation. Right. And I think we'll have to put a question mark in in the title, Stockholm Syndrome question mark. Great, great, great point. Love it. But what we're going to do now is we are going to head over to Patreon and you all should head over there too. So drop us a fiver because I have got some pop culture references that are related to Stockholm Syndrome with a doozy at the end, one of my most favourites, and you should come and listen. See you very soon. See you, folks. Love you. Bye. That's a wrap. Big shout out to everyone for tuning in to Shit and Bricks. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us. Plus, you can find extra little nuggets on our socials. Next week, we'll be back talking more shit, so do not forget to tune in. And remember to wipe, flush, and wash your hands. Goodbye. Goodbye.